This is Political Odds. My guest this week is Dr. Shui Lan, Dean of the School of Public Policy and Management at Tsinghua University and Dean of the Schwarzman Scholars Program in Beijing, China. Dr. Shui grew up in the Cultural Revolution, was among the first generation of Chinese re-allowed to sit the National University entrance exam, then pursued postgraduate studies in the United States. As founding dean of the School of Public Policy at Tsinghua, he has overseen the education of the next generation of Chinese political leaders. He has also been an advisor to the Chinese government and has written extensively on emergency management, on the fourth industrial revolution, and the public policy implications of AI. He spoke to us about growing up under the portrait of Chairman Mao and about the enduring importance of novels in his life. Dean Shreya, thank you so much for being with us. Um, the first question I had was, you know, those of us who've spent some time in China know that one year in China is many years. I wondered what were some of the defining historical events of your time and how have they influenced your worldview today? For me, I think the most um, probably defining uh, years would be that the year and a half I spent in the countryside, uh, you know, during the Cultural Revolution. So uh, all the high school graduates would have to go to the countryside to receive so-called re-education. So I spent a year and a half uh, from 76 to the early of 78. And, and so I think that actually really, you know, gave me a, a real sense uh, of China in the countryside. What's the life like, how people think, how people, you know, live their lives. Yeah. What was it that you got? What, what was it that you learned? I think I learned a great deal, but I think I, I pretty much always sort of learned, you know, lived in sort of more of a, uh, in the urban sort of settings, uh, but, but at the time, uh, over 80% of the people live in the rural area. So I had not had much idea of how Chinese rural life is. Mm. Particularly, I think the, at the initial phase that we were told that, you know, that's where we're going to spend our, the rest of our life so that's sort of where <laughs> you, you have really a, a sense of, wow, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, this is where I'm going to spend my, this is a remote area in, in the north, um, uh, north, uh, northern part of uh, uh, China, very, you know, remote to the mountains, uh, mountain area. Mm. And I, I think that it gives you some sort of, uh, you know, uh, real hard thinking about y- your life. Mm. Uh, so I, I think that's that kind of a combination of the harsh reality of life, but also at the same time, you see the kind of people who, you know, are really down to earth and they live the life. I mean, you know, it's very harsh, but at the same time, they are optimistic, mm. they are really kind, and so it's for us. I mean, they really, in a way, and try in their way to show how, you know, to teach us and to show their kindness to us. Mm. So I think that combination gives you a much more sense uh, of, of the, you know, humanity of the people and the kind of, a, you know, education mm. 
I still think that you know it's really important mm. for all of us. Mm. Did it feel at the time that you were a part of this historical movement, and how has your feelings about the downfalls and the catastrophes of that era changed over time? I think, of course, I think we all know the Cultural Revolution lasted for ten years. Actually, my entire, you know, primary school and high school was well, exactly coincided with the Cultural Revolution, the ten years of Cultural Revolution. I think that really left a very strong sense uh, that you know the stability and the is so important. You, you didn't want. I mean, I mean, just from the you know parents and you know the others when they talk about. You can see that you know during this chaotic era, uh, you know, era mm. that uh, um, uh, you know you don't have a normal life. For people who've gone through that, so the treasure, normal life, stability so much mm. that I think many people outside China would not be, you know, be able to understand how why China's in in the later last forty years and there was so much. You know, a focus on how to maintain that stability mm. and no, uh, normality. Yeah. Mm. We were the first uh, uh, cohort that uh, you know were, took the national examination well. after the Cultural Revolution, and was fortunate enough to you know to pass the examination and got to the college. Sure. Yeah, and then afterward, I went to the states. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. And your bachelor's degree, and then your PhD was in engineering and public policy, right? Yeah. Um, What's the relationship between the two of them? Well, I think the the two. I think basically, I think of course, you know, public policy is very wide range, and you know, there are so many policy issues and so on. But I think increasingly, I think as science and technology is playing such a critical role in our society, so there's a, increasingly there's there's sort of a, there's a set of issues, that's sort of policy issues, mm. where technology. Plays a central role. In other words, you cannot ignore it. You cannot just treat that as a black box. So you really have to understand the technical side of the the issue in order to make a better、uh, policy.、Mm. So that's you know where what sort of engineering public policy、uh, are dealing with.、Mm. Do you think it? You know, in China, it's not at all uncommon for senior leaders to have background in engineering and the sciences. In a way that it's much rarer in the West, I think. That's true. Do you、yeah. think it leads to a different kind of leadership style? Well, I I think of course I think that、uh, you know for you know senior leaders at, at at national level, you need to have a much more strategic views and understanding of some issues. But but I think people have. You know different backgrounds and so on. That I think,、uh, in in some cases, it's just by the kind of the the natural outcome of the system. But others more of,、uh, by chance.、Mm. I think in a way that uh, um, in China it's probably by chance, because I think the、um, after the Cultural Revolution, when China began to really to focus on economic economic development,、mm. so it needs people who understand how economic activities. Are carried out,、mm. are managed. So where do you look for people?、Mm. You know, for for those kind of leaders.、Mm. Um, so basically,、uh, they look from the so-called the main, you know, enterprises. You know, that's sort of really, you know, organizing, managing the productions. So a lot of the people were,、uh, you know, basically moved from the major enterprises, chief engineers, 
or the you know managers of um, you know major uh, uh, plant, mm. many of those people do have the engineering and science background, so they rose up to the rank and mm. and then became so you know the so uh, you know the national leaders. So Premier Zhu Rongji, a Tsinghua alumni, you know, uh, you know President Jiang Zemin, who you know is a Shanghai Jiao Tong alumni, they all they all have engineering mm. background. Mm. So that in a way I see as more of a historical you know coincidence. Right. Uh, but of course now you see increasingly more people with legal background, with you know management and with you know economics and so on, mm. rose up to the ranks. Mm. So I think that you know uh, different systems have different uh, you know you know sort of ways. Mm. Yeah. Dean, I wonder if you could introduce the first piece of artwork that was influential to you. To think of uh, you know I mean we grew up during the Cultural Revolution mm. era, so we ask about artwork. Some earliest, you know, so the, in a way, so the uh, uh, artwork mm. was a portrait of Chairman Mao going to Anyuan. Mm. <laughs> because that's actually the, uh, I, I mean, my memory of you know, so the artwork uh, that was, you know, during the Cultural Revolution when I was a child, that was everywhere. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, showing the young, you know, uh, Mao Zedong carrying an umbrella and going to to one of the mine mines, uh, to to uh, to to understand how people you know their you know uh, you know work and and how actually it's going to have a, uh, a fight with the their the you know the, the capitalist capitalist uh, boss. Right. Yeah. When you look at a portrait of the chairman today, mm. does it bring back some of the old emotions? <laughs> it's a very different one, uh, but but I think that that in a way I think it's um, uh, it's an interesting reminder in a way that uh, uh, that no matter how high how high up you are and you need to be somewhat you know uh, in touch mm-hmm. with the reality and that actually is the one that uh, supposedly I think the story is that actually he went to. You know, to understand how the workers there, you know, really having a harsh life and mm. so on. So, so mm. yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> it's a very odd. I think people, very few people now knows about the portrait. Right. But at the time, I think was of course that's the one that uh, came to the For sure. Came to mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, the second set of questions I have is about uh, your life in in the university system in China and in particular mm-hmm. the many leadership positions that you've taken on establishing the public policy school at Tsinghua. Um, I want to ask firstly about that, about establishing a school within um, one of the leading institutions in China and the one that's very closely linked to um, political leadership in the country. Mm-hmm. What were you trying to bring with the public policy school specifically? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, the, uh, first of all, I think that the, you know, public administration and mm. the field has uh, a long history in China, not to mention so, you know, in the, the thousands of uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the governance uh, you know, uh, system. I think there are many historical classicals on that. On that. But I think even the, I mean the modern uh, university education in the early twenties and thirties, and there were already courses being taught in, in public administration, and but of course which was stopped in nineteen fifties. Mm. 
So in 1980s, and that was revived, and uh, there were, so in a way, the public public administration, in in its very traditional way, was was always there in 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 the Chinese uh, academic world. Um, but then, uh, of course, I studied public policy, public administration in in the U.S. Uh, you know, so when I was uh, visited back in in 1990s, and I realized that. Um, uh, the public administration at the time that was taught is very in tradi- very traditional way, mm-hmm. basically looking at how bureaucracy works within the existing government structure. Uh, so there was, you know, uh, first of all, there was not a, uh, you know, a, a lot of focus on, on public policy, mm-hmm. and also there was not a lot of uh, goes beyond, you know, sort of the traditional government bureaucracy in terms of looking at the NGOs. And other in, in the broader, uh, you know, uh, uh, views on, on public uh, administration. So I saw that um, you know be really, uh, I there's really a need uh, for a sort of more up to date, mm-hmm. you know, understanding of the issue, you know, within the uh, you know a, a sort of a dedicated sort of public policy school. In terms of the direction, I think. One challenge for a highly centralized state like China is mm-hmm. um, for its bureaucrats getting the balance right between having a kind of a, a values alignment mm-hmm. with the regime and then competence, mm-hmm. right? And how do you think about that balance when you were setting the curriculum mm-hmm. or hiring or when you started teaching? I, I think actually, um, in a way, I think you can say that it's uh, challenging, but also I think it's it's also uh, 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 easy in the sense that, uh, first of all, I think in Chinese governance system, there's always very much focus on the on people. Mm. I think uh, what so that's why people so called the meritocracy in in China. There's, so there's really a lot of focus on how to select the best people, the most competent people, with the sort of moral char- character and so on to be able to serve in the, in, in, in the public domain. Mm-hmm. So I think that has been, in a way, part of the Chinese tradition. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think in the, uh, in, during the reform era, that all, that's also uh, been a major focus. In a way, one can argue that the success of China's economic reform is partly due to the fact that you have such a group of uh, Dedicated, talented people who are working in, in various parts of the, or, you know, the the system that that allows the that push for push for the reform and allow the various kind of a uh, policy experiments that's been, uh, you know, on the, uh, uh, that happened in in China. So I I think that's sort of in a way the the good part. But I think the challenging part is indeed how do you you know bring many of this so called framework. And analytical tools, you know, mostly from the West, mm. to combine that with the so tra- traditional Chinese thinking, and then you know, placed in a very complicated situation in China's reform, how to mesh with that mm. so that allows the you know people to address those you know uh, challenges that they face day to day, you know, uh, every day uh, in a way. So I think that's more of combining those two in a complicated situation, I think that's more of a challenge. Mm. Yeah. Dean, could you introduce us 
to the second piece of artwork that was influential? Uh, I, I've read a lot of novels and uh, <laughs> during the Cultural Revolution years. Yeah. Uh, I, I have to say that, that one that I was also quite impressed with the uh, War and Peace mm, wow. by, by uh, I think, the... Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, because I think that that's sort of the one that um, uh, um, you see, you know, in a way, in, in a much more historical sense to see the kind of human lives during this, you know, sort of kind of a uh, 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 tumultuous in the various kind of years and wow. so on. So I think that in a way to a certain degree gives you some sense of uh, thinking about you know China's you know sort of uh, 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 lives during those years. Mm. Uh, but of course I think it, it's a long took you know took me quite a while to, <laughs> to read through and a lot of the things that you know I. I didn't fully understand, but later sure. years and we reflect, I think that so they, wow. you know, they, uh, um, so I think uh, in a way that some of the Russian, uh, you know, novels was translated into Chinese mm. during the 50s, so it's easily access, uh, accessible during mm. the, you know, the, the, the early 1980s. Mm. Yeah. So you read it in the countryside for the first time? No, 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 okay. I, I think actually with, with this, uh, this novel was more read, yeah, I think, during the college years. Oh, I yeah, see, yeah, I, I see. I think, yeah, yeah. Do you think there's a kind of um, a cultural affinity or an understanding with, say, Russian novelists than, I mean, we're here in England, than with English novels or American ones? Well, I, I think, of course, I, I read many other sort of novels, I mean, English novels, and during the Cultural Revolution, I read a lot of Chinese novels. Mm. But in terms of the, so the you know, foreign novels, and, and, and that's, sort of, you know, one of the early pieces. Mm. You know, sometimes that, that's, sort of, you know, the first thing goes to the mind, I think yeah, they, well. you have much... Uh, a stronger impression. Uh, wow. That's yeah. That's fascinating. Um, I wanna. My last set of questions is about um, your work in public service, and the first question is about emergency response. And I wonder how. What are the specific challenges for a highly centralized state like China when it comes to emergency response? And how did you get into that work? I think in terms of the. Uh, in terms of emergency management uh, uh, involvement, I think this really was sort of in a way sort of by chance uh, that uh, we, you know, because of my work, I think that um, is in public policy area. So I know I watched, you know, social trends. Uh, by year 2000 and 2001, we can clearly see that as China's economics is developing very fast, and, uh, and also people's, you know, life has changed dramatically. And people's expectation is getting, you know, high. Mm-hmm. And also at the same, same time that when uh, there were uh, economic development, uh, you, know, uh, you know, it's growing fast and there's a need to get more land, get more, you know, uh, uh, you know development uh, projects ongoing. So you see increasing tensions, you know, in terms of, for example, the, the the you know, local government is trying to get some land mm. from the owners, and the owners is fighting back for you know uh, unfair you know sort of compensations and mm. so on. So you see that so in a way, so called the you know the the, the incidents mm. of this kind of a, uh, raw, uh, raw I think it's uh, it's emerging. My training at Carnegie Mellon was mm. that we 
worked on, you know, sort of risk analysis and on, you know, sort of crisis, uh, crisis management. So there were some trainings back then, you know, during those years. Mm. So I think that I began to sort of, you know, dig back to my work previously on, on, I mean, my coursework uh, during those years and began to, you know, to um, uh, try to understand how we can analyze, uh, you know, those issues. So we actually began to write a book on mm. crisis management. So I think by the time of 2003, mm. the manuscript was almost ready. Mm. And uh, long and behold, you have SARS. Yeah. So when SARS came, uh, you know, it was clear, I mean, initially people would interpret that more as a public health event. Mm. Uh, but from my point of view, this is exactly what we've been looking at. This is a crisis, right? Uh, in in that sense, so I think that um, uh, so I was actually invited to by then the sort of you know senior leader in the state council mm. to um, you know for policy consultation. Did seeing your theory come to bear on a real life situations mm-hmm. like the SARS outbreak? Mm-hmm make you change your mind on anything or to revise the initial theory? Uh, certainly, I mean, it allows us to see, you know, the general framework and how that, you know, of course, when that was applied to a particular event mm. like SARS. And also allows us to see, you know, the institutional, uh, 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 you know, issues that existed in, in, the, in the Chinese system. So if you think about the government functions, I think it's a normal situation, you know, a normal mode and the crisis mode, right? Mm-hmm. So normal mode, I think, you know, that works fine, and then we have a crisis, and then you assemble a, a, a sort of a team of people try to address it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, then you have all the kind of problems that we see in, in during the SARS period. Mm-hmm. So in a way that... Um, um, uh, after the crisis is over, so we've been advocating, and also I think with uh, very strong support, uh, you know, from the uh, you know people in the government, that you know China needs to think about a new generation mm-hmm. of response system. Now it's being so-called the uh, 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 in Chinese word it's so-called mm-hmm. the Yan San Zhi. I think now pretty much I think nationwide that new system is in, in place. And so I think that's really sort of gratifying to, to see that what you, you know, in a way, uh, studied sort of in yeah. theory, but now it's been put into practice. Wow. Yeah. Your recent work, Dean, has been on um, the fourth industrial revolution, and you spoke yesterday about the speed and the surprising nature of the technological changes. I wonder whether you think the fourth industrial revolution concentrates the power of the state or decentralizes it? I think in general, I would say that it decentralizes, mm. decentralizes, no matter whether this was, uh, you know, in, in the country or, or in the world. I think in general, I think that um, uh, it, it, it actually, you know, it really allows, uh, you know, uh, any individual or organization uh, can do a lot of things that previ- previously was unimaginable even for a country. So I think that's in, indeed, I, I say that it's decentralizing in general. Mm-hmm. But of course, I, in, in many ways, you can also think about that, certainly can 
goes the opposite. But in general, I would still argue that mm. it's more decentralized. And what do you think the policy response from China looks like? Well, I think the for 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 China, I think first of all, I think China has been very pro innovation uh, over the last forty years. Uh, if you look at um, Chinese leadership's uh, view on innovation, has been always very supportive. Uh, I think probably if you look at the across, uh, you know the the uh, you know the world, I, I think there's probably no other leaders that pay so much attention and be so supportive of innovation, uh, you know, as Chinese leaders. Uh, so I think that it, it, it's a bit unfair to, you know, for Trump administration and, uh, and sort of, you know, uh, le- alleging sort of, you know, what, uh, you know, how China's innovation capabilities was based on, you know, whatever. Mm. Um, the reality is that China's worked for 40 years mm. and moving, I mean, you know, investing a lot of money and a lot of policy to support and so on. So I think that, that, that uh, I think the, uh, that's sort of the, 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 the kind of a support mm. that you see and that, you know, whatever you see, the, 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 the current system is the outcome of that long process. Dean, could you talk about the last piece of artwork that was influential? And then I'll have one more question for you. <laughs> the, <laughs> well, in a way, I think the, the last work, I think, was the, uh, this uh, short novel uh, mm-hmm. by uh, a, uh, a, um, uh, it's a sci-fi, uh, you know, sort of a novel. Sure. By uh, some uh, someone, uh, you know, from the uh, Chinese Development Foundation. Oh well. Yeah, uh, that got the. I think that received the Hugo. Oh, is the three body problem? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That did very well. Yeah, I think that that really. I think you know, it's a, it's a fascinating in its way to think about. You know, I think uh, in in a rapidly changing. You know, Chinese society. Mm-hmm. I mean, Beijing, of course, I live in Beijing. Right. Uh, society is changing so fast, but actually, you know, there's so many people from different spectrum of the society that may actually have totally different lives. Mm-hmm. We live in and in, in a certain spectrum, and uh, you know, but but there are other people in other spectrum, and that we have not really uh, given enough attention to, mm-hmm. and how we can actually in in the future development. How can old people can be brought along? I think that's you know I think it's a it's a quite a fascinating uh, uh, view of of, of uh, microcosm of the uh, you know China's development. Mm. I think that's an interesting one. It sounds like an insight going back to the your time in the countryside. Really, <laughs> yeah, you know? right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the last question I have is, you've taken the deanship at the Schwarzman Scholars Program, of which I was a very grateful recipient. Um, you spoke about Donald Trump earlier and the tensions um, between the U.S. and China, and we also spoke about the deep ambivalence in my own country, Australia, about the rise of China and of Asia more generally. Do you see reasons for optimism at this time? I see increasingly uh, uh, there's um, more tension on how to understand, I mean, 
to improve understanding of China. I think that uh, in a way that uh, China's development over the last 40 years, I think actually it's, uh, it's one of the probably unprecedented cases of a hum- in, in the human history. But unfortunately, I would say that um, for many reasons, that was story was not very well understood mm-hmm. uh, in China and outside China, and particularly outside China. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now I think that increasingly there are more people, you know, with really, I think, the, the kind of foresight recognize that deficiency. Mm-hmm. And so I hope that, uh, in a way, the, uh, the uh, Schwarzman program or, or similar kind of program or initiatives can play the role to, in a way, I think, of course, Schwarzman's you know, mission is to train the next generation of uh, you know, global leadership mm-hmm. that you know, can have a better understanding and, and, and appreciation of what's really going on in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's certainly, I think, the, probably the core mission of the uh, Schwarzman program. But also, I think there are also, there's another important aspect is how such institution can play a, a, a role of platform mm. of engaging people to, you know, uh, to understand China better, but also to, uh, uh, to have a, this cross-culture, cross, you know, sort of national boundary, cross-religion, and in a way to uh, cross boundaries of all kinds to have you know, communication, discussion, dialogue, debates. So there are many of those new challenges that no single country can address. Mm. So I think that's sort of where I think we're, you know, uh, uh, you know, we really have to work together. Mm. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. Our guest this week was Dr. Shui Lan. Cover art is by Alistair Debling, music by Rico Alice, sound by Jay Park. My name is Bo So, this is Political Arts, and we'll talk some more next week. <laughs>